On the morning of November 12, 2021, hundreds of people gathered on the steps of Pennsylvania's Capitol building to rally for more equitable funding for public schools. We have the right to hold the leaders accountable to create our future professionals capable of moving PA ahead. It was something people had done dozens, if not hundreds of times before. But today was different. Because right down the street, a landmark lawsuit decades in the making was finally being heard in the state's Commonwealth Court. Many people rang cowbells that day, which had become a symbol of their fight. Yes, my throat official bell, that's what I said. Ring my bell! Yes. Remember Sheila Armstrong? She's the mom whose son's school in Philadelphia closed due to budget cuts. Sheila was one of several parents to sue the state for more funding, along with six school districts and two statewide advocacy groups. Throughout the lawsuit, Sheila and the other advocates would ring these red cowbells at press conferences and outside courtrooms to remind people what they were fighting for. A system of thorough and efficient schools. The language is the most important part. That language, thorough and efficient, comes from the state's own constitution. And it was at the heart of the case. Pennsylvania's Education Clause says the legislature, quote, shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public education to serve the needs of the Commonwealth. Here, the word shall is a legal command and means someone has to do something. So the legislature has to pay for public education. That part is clear. But what do they have to pay for exactly? What does thorough and efficient really mean? That's what lawyers on each side of the case would argue over during the trial. You aren't allowed to record inside Pennsylvania courtrooms, so there's no tape from the trial. But there are transcripts, and we're going to read from them throughout this episode. In her opening statement, one of the lawyers for the plaintiffs, Katrina Robson, argued the authors of the clause chose their words carefully. Quote, they didn't provide for just any level of education. This wasn't a check-the-box exercise, Robson said. They are words that require more than a bare minimum. Words that require a system that serves all children, not just some. The question before this court is whether the General Assembly has met its mandate. We will show that it has not. On the other side, Patrick Northen, a lawyer for one of the state's defendants, GOP House Speaker Brian Cutler, was also focused on word choice. He said the authors had considered including the word uniform in the clause, but they didn't. Quote, the framers were also worried about a race to the bottom, meaning that rather than elevating lower-performing schools to do better, a uniformity clause might cause higher-performing schools to weaken their efforts, Northen said. He went on to say that thorough and efficient means the state must provide free education to all K-12 students, which it does, and that it doesn't guarantee anything beyond that. It would be up to the judge to decide who was right. From WHYY, this is Schooled, a podcast where we tell the story of public schools through the eyes of students, parents, and teachers. I'm Aubrey Uhas. In this episode, we're taking you to court. We'll walk you through the twists and turns in Pennsylvania's landmark school funding trial, a case with the power to permanently transform the state's education system. That's after the break. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? 
The architect of the case, the man responsible for seeing these parties in court, was Michael Churchill, a lawyer with a long history of taking the state to task on issues in public education. His goal was to bring together schools from across the state to challenge Pennsylvania's funding system. But he had a hard time getting them to sign on. Many uh, districts were reluctant to uh, take on Harrisburg. That's not the culture in Pennsylvania. (laughs) You're going to wave the flag, say, hey, we're poor, and things aren't going great here. Not easy. But we didn't see any other way. That's Jennifer Hoff. And the we she's referring to is William Penn, the underfunded suburban school district we visited in episode one. Jennifer is a longtime member of the district school board. She knew what they were up against, but she was determined. We were definitely going to do it. We knew that we had a fight for ourselves or it wasn't going to happen. More than two decades ago, Jennifer got involved in public education policy when she moved to Lansdowne, one of six boroughs covered by the William Penn School District. She did it for a house. It's the 1894 Center Hall Victorian. Yeah, money pit. Um. (laughs) Jennifer's oldest child was a toddler then, and she was visibly pregnant with twins. One day she was working in the yard when... Someone comes up and they're like, oh, really nice house, welcome to the neighborhood, and the schools are really bad. (laughs) I was like, all right, here we go. Jennifer wasn't faced. She comes from a family of teachers and says her mom taught in a quote-unquote bad school district. But she wanted to know what her new neighbor meant, so she started going to school board meetings. She says not much has changed between now and then. Same issues, interestingly enough. The big one being the district didn't have enough money, despite having one of the highest property tax rates in the state. Nobody likes their property taxes. Like, nobody. They're outrageous. But they also understand that the path to their house being worth more money is better schools. Problem is, the houses in this district are not valued as highly as in other areas. So even with the high tax rate, the district doesn't collect enough money to fully function. Families who can often move to wealthier communities because they're perceived as having better schools. And at least from a funding perspective, they often do. This goes back to the state's reliance on local property taxes to fund education. And it creates a vicious cycle for low-income families, as wealth becomes more concentrated. There is right and wrong, and no young person should have their education decided by how much their parents make. When her kids were old enough, Jennifer enrolled them in William Penn schools. The schools were underfunded, but she could see they were good in other ways. She saw teachers and administrators that cared about their students, and she appreciated the strong sense of community. A few years after that, she ran for a seat on the school board and won. From the very beginning, she had one goal, to fix the money. I always said that I would stay till we got funded. Jennifer and the rest of the board believed the state system was at the root of many of their problems. So they frequently asked their legislators for help. Throw us, you know, a million here and a million there. And it wasn't not helpful. Uh, But it was always a band-aid on the, the dam that was about to break. The money helped fill the hole but never completely. And we always knew that the only path forward was another lawsuit. Jennifer had watched the lawyer Michael Churchill's first attempt to sue the state. So when he came knocking, she was ready. Ultimately, the district agreed to sign on as the lawsuit's lead plaintiff. Who are these guys? What are they doing? Like, why are they complaining? Like, we're suing PDE. PDE, the Pennsylvania Department of Education. The suit also named state officials, including the governor at the time, Tom Wolfe, the secretary of education, and leaders of the legislature. 
It accused them of violating Pennsylvania's constitution, which says the state legislature has to provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public schools. The six districts were located in rural, urban, and suburban communities. They stretched from Greater Johnstown in western Pennsylvania to Wilkes-Barre in the northeast and William Penn in the southeast. And they were racially diverse. Some of the districts have mostly white students, while others have mostly students of color. Our first job was to win the case, okay? Prove that uh, there's not sufficient funding and that the funding that there is is unfair. Michael had two strategies. First, use witnesses who could show how a lack of funding was preventing some schools from providing students with an adequate education. One of the witnesses was William Penn kindergarten teacher Nicole Miller. She was a student in the district and has now been teaching there for more than 20 years. When Nicole took the stand, she talked a lot about what happens inside her classroom. You try to take them on a journey, you know, a picture walk, a mind movie, like to lay it out, like what this looks like in real time, you know, what this looks like from day to day, and you hope that they can see. But she feels like the other side didn't see the picture she was trying to paint. I left in tears. It's unbelievable what the other side would say, you know, like, how can you argue this? Nicole felt like the lawyers for the state were trying to blame her students for not achieving. It sounded like I was hearing that children who have learning gaps or, you know, children in districts that look like ours are unmotivated. That they don't want to go to school or their parents don't value education. Nicole says that's just not true. Not one of my kindergartners is unmotivated. They want to come to school. We spent a morning in Nicole's classroom at Evans Elementary in Yaden, just outside of Philadelphia. Good morning, Miller. Good morning, Mrs. Miller. Good morning, Mrs. Miller. And it was eventful. You have new glasses? Yeah! You look so handsome! Nicole says when her students struggle, it's not because they lack motivation, but because they don't have the resources they need to succeed. She says she sees the spark, the love of learning in almost every child when they start. And as they grow older, she sometimes watches that spark die. And, you know, when I talk to them and get to the root of it, a lot of it is frustration. Nicole says many of these students require one-on-one attention. But they rarely get it because class sizes are large and teachers just don't have enough time. I'd want to storm out the room, too. It's hot. You know, we're packed in. I'm not getting what I need, so I want to get out. Nicole tries to make her classroom welcoming, the kind of place where you want to come and learn. The walls are covered with student artwork. For spring, there are butterflies and kites. But still, her classroom looks worn and a little empty. My husband did come in and paint the cubbies for me. In a typical year, Nicole has about 25 students in her class and no other adults. It's just me. Many of her students don't attend preschool, and most live in poverty which research says makes them less likely to build important early literacy skills at home. So when they start the school year, Nicole says their skills are all over the place. While some students may have started reading sight words, others don't know the difference between a number, a letter, and a shape. She sometimes thinks about what it would be like if all of her students attended high-quality preschool. That is actually my dream. Imagine what you could do with a whole year, you know, with a whole preschool, right, two years of of high-quality preschool instruction, it would make all the difference in the world. Pennsylvania has some free preschool options, but there aren't enough spots, and it isn't all high-quality. 
So Nicole meets kids where they're at and tries her best to get them ready for first grade. By the end of kindergarten, I want everybody to be a reader. I want everybody to be a writer. You know, I, I, I want them to feel successful. I want them to feel like they love to come to school. They love to learn. But getting students the support they need can be difficult when she's the only adult in the room. Like, for example, during our um, reading block, we do have small group instruction. So during that time, I'm pulling at the red table over there. Like Everybody else is expected to be independent and doing independent work. And they're kindergartners. But they're five. And so they're not ready to be independent learners. While Nicole tries to help a new student, other students hover, waiting to show her the sentences they've written. She tries to stay focused on the new student a little boy with bright blonde hair. I don't think he spent much time in school. There were, there was some homelessness. He, this sweetest thing, didn't know how to spell his name. Nicole asks him what he wants to say and writes it for him in his notebook. She uses a highlighter so he can trace the letters. And then let him draw the picture to match so he feels successful. In the middle of all this, a student who is clearly not a kindergartner walks into Nicole's classroom holding a pink slip of paper. The fifth grader has been sent out of his class for misbehavior to Nicole, who's one of the school's two lead teachers. I could just say, go sit at the red table and, you know, take your time out and do your work and then go. But I like to talk to him at least to find out what's going on. Well, okay, but then you got all four. So obviously, but yes, it's in the middle of of teaching kindergarten. As Nicole tries to get to the bottom of what happened, she keeps working with her new student, while also keeping an eye on everything else that's happening in her classroom. This level of multitasking is both impressive and troubling. Nicole says the school's one counselor is often busy, and the same is true for the principal. So she steps in to help. I don't think that I'm necessarily equipped to be like a counselor or to intervene in that way. That's just not my skill set, but I, I try. In the courtroom, Nicole talked about how increased funding could help improve student outcomes at her school. And a big part of that is staffing. Like if a student learns something wrong, Nicole says it might take her a few days to notice or correct them since she's the only adult. She says that delay is how learning gaps form. If I did have another adult in the, in the room, um, they could, you know, kind of answer all those questions and help with any misconceptions and um, go into a group and, and support the students in that way. And that would be ideal. But at the trial, she felt like her words fell on deaf ears. I feel like the other side maybe just doesn't have a clue. Just really doesn't get it. They just really don't see it. It's not their lived experience. Only one student took the stand, Michael Horvath, who by the time the case finally made it to trial was a former student since he'd graduated from high school. Michael was in the eighth grade when the lawsuit was filed. His mom, Tracy, signed him on. I really wanted to be involved. I didn't realize that my son was going to be so involved. Yeah, I don't think I really ever realized I was as big of a part of it. Uh, I don't think he was really very pleased with me. The two live in Wilkes-Barre in northeastern Pennsylvania on the banks of the Susquehanna River. Like all of the plaintiff districts, Wilkes-Barre is property poor and struggles financially. 
So much so that in the years after the Great Recession, it took extreme measures to lower its expenses and reduce its growing deficit. It cut art classes and closed libraries, furloughed teachers, and fired support staff. All of these cuts had consequences for Michael. I never had to write a research paper in high school before, where I had to cite references and uh, have in-text citations. Michael says he struggled after high school and dropped out of college because he was unprepared. When he took the stand, he felt like lawyers for the state weren't sympathetic. I like, felt so attacked with some of the questions. Like I just said to the dude, like, you wouldn't send your kid to my school. Michael says it felt like the lawyers tried to make it seem like it was his fault, that he didn't learn what he needed to in high school. They combed through his grades, test scores, and absences. They were able to bring up, like, emails between my mom and teachers and, like, thinking I was worried about, like, only girls in football. And just, like, little things like that. They were asking me questions as if they never went to high school before. A lawyer for the defense asked Michael about an email exchange between his mom and one of his teachers when he was a senior in high school. Since there isn't a recording, I'm going to read from the transcript. The teacher said he'd bombed a quiz, hadn't turned in an assignment, and was using his phone when he should have been paying attention in class. Michael didn't dispute that. Quote, did you have a smartphone at this time, the lawyer asked. Yes, Michael said. And what kind of things did you use your phone for? Michael responded, I'm sure it was stupid kid stuff. I was an immature 16-year-old back then. After more questions from the lawyer about whether he texted and what apps he used, Michael said it again. Quote, I get what you're saying, he said. I shouldn't have been on my phone. But like I stated, I was an immature 16-year-old kid. That doesn't change the fact that his school was falling apart, Michael says. Or that the library was closed and he had to share one guidance counselor with 700 other kids. Michael, who is now 21, is working and back in school trying again for his college diploma. Looking back, he says while he didn't understand the importance of the case when it first started, he's proud he took the stand. I'm glad that it happened when it did, because I believe that if I had done it like any earlier in my life, I wouldn't have appreciated it the way how I did. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? When it came to the standard of education children are entitled to under the words thorough and efficient, one lawyer for the defense argued the state only had to provide the basics. Quote, I'm not going to stand here and argue that all of the school buildings in all of the school districts are the Taj Mahal, or even that the physical conditions in the poorer districts are the same as what you'll see in wealthier districts, the lawyer said. He went on to say that the evidence would show that the kids in plaintiff districts have the, quote, basic instrumentalities for an adequate education, listing things like chairs to sit on, desks or tables to write at, walls and roofs, and working plumbing. But the superintendent of another plaintiff district, David McAndrew, says his schools don't even have all those things. At the elementary school, the roof leaks, and 75 kindergartners share one toilet. McAndrew works in Panther Valley, a small rural district in the heart of what used to be Pennsylvania's coal country. 
Here's the lawyer, Michael Churchill, again. Uh, we knew one of the things that would be uh, facing any superintendent that testified was that they were going to be charged with uh, being two-faced and saying one thing in the courtroom about how, how difficult it was and uh, the problems and saying something else on graduation days when they were congratulating their students. Only a small fraction of students who graduated in 2013 from Panther Valley earned a two- or four-year college degree within six years of graduating. Quote, I don't believe we're preparing them for the future, McAndrew said on the stand, growing increasingly emotional. It's not because we don't want to. It's because we don't have the means to, he said. We have kids who want to learn. We have kids who are raising their hand, but we can't get to them. We have kids that are looking for help, and we can't help them as much as we want to. He continued, quote, I'm sitting here and I'm asking the state of Pennsylvania to help us. Who else is there to ask? At the end, McAndrew said, you know, I'm here because where else can I go? Simple as that. And um, the court was very moved by that. Everybody was very moved by that. Um, And it was very hard. It's making me uh, um, a little teary-eyed, as you can see, because it's a rotten system when you think about it. I mean, when you when the only place you can go is to some courtroom to try to get a judge to side with you on something that should be so obvious about its unfairness is just remarkable when you think about it. If calling witnesses from schools was the first part of Michael's strategy, the second was to try and turn the other side's witnesses against them. Just about every good trial lawyer I know has always preached that... Um, Anything you can prove out of your opponent's mouth and and their documents is that much stronger and that much better. So we looked at the state's own research. A key piece of evidence was a costing-out study commissioned by the legislature that looked at how much money the state needed to spend to fully fund its schools. The report showed the state would need to spend $4.6 billion to close the gap. Out of the state's 500 school districts, just 30 were spending enough money. They basically admitted the very problems that we were describing in our lawsuit. While some of the state's lawyers disputed this, others didn't. Remember, the defense included both Republicans and Democrats, including the Democratic governor at the time, Tom Wolf. Wolf and his administration initially opposed the suit going to trial and argued they were doing enough on their own to make school funding more equitable, but later changed course and asked for the case to move forward. Michael says it was up to the state to prove that schools did have enough resources and therefore enough money. It was a chance for the other side to try and say, yes, you do. Uh, but, you know, uh, they, they had no witness that was able to say that. You know, you can't spend your way to a solution here. That's Jason Willis, one of the state's expert witnesses. Of everyone we reached out to from the defense, Jason was the only one who would speak to us. He's a director at a California-based education research group and has advised a number of state and school leaders on finance issues. It does matter how much you're investing in the system, but often it matters almost as much, if not more, how you are spending those resources that you do have to support those students. This has been the other side's argument for a really long time. Sure, money matters, but what matters more is how schools spend the money they do have. It's the idea that the amount of money isn't the problem. It's school leadership, or bad teachers, or poor spending decisions. Elected officials in Pennsylvania have made this argument over and over again, including Representative Brian Cutler, 
the state's top-ranking Republican who was also named in the lawsuit. Money alone, without good policy changes, fails to hit the target. And Jason made the argument that the state of Pennsylvania is spending plenty of money on education already. Pennsylvania does spend more per student on average than the, the national average. He's right. On average, Pennsylvania does spend more money per student. But the other side argues that spending is distributed unevenly. The wealthiest districts and their spending drive up the overall number. Another lawyer for the defense made arguments that went beyond money and dollars spent per student. Arguments that questioned the very role of education. The lawyer repeatedly asked one superintendent why the state's academic standards mattered for all students. Quote, What use would a carpenter have for biology? The lawyer asked. What use would someone on the McDonald's career track have for Algebra 1? He continued, Quote, the question in my mind is thorough and efficient to what end? To serve the needs of the Commonwealth? Lest we forget the Commonwealth has many needs. There's a need for retail workers, for people who know how to flip a pizza crust. I felt that statement rude. Philadelphia mom Sheila Armstrong was put off. <laughs> I felt that statement very rude and ignorant. I honestly did. So to sit there and just go on under assumption that our schools don't need to be great because we need burger flippers. That's, that's, that's laughable to me, because we need that burger flipper to still raise their family. That's the part Sheila says the defense was missing. The people that you're trying to write off is still part of our society. The arguments, the testimonials, the tension, it went on. Thanksgiving came and went. The holidays passed. Then the new year. After nearly four months, the trial finally came to a close. Both sides walked out of the courtroom, and then they waited. No one knew when the decision would come. It took nearly a year. And then... Pennsylvania school funding system violates the state constitution. That is the ruling of a Commonwealth Court judge who found that the system... Lacked I was at work. Yeah, I was at work. I was at the store. Fortunately, it was on a Tuesday because one of the days of the week that everybody is in the office. The ruling dropped on a cold afternoon in February court had decided in the plaintiff's favor. Pennsylvania's school funding system was inadequate and inequitable to the point that it violated the state's constitution. And I was like, we won? It's over? Oh my God. And I started jumping up and down in the supermarket. And I was like, we won the case. We won the case. And stuff like that. You're shouting this out loud? I'm, I'm just, because Skylar down the aisle, because we in the supermarket, we won. And I'm all hyped. And it was so funny, because... Hey, we won. Case one. People around. And the lady said, well, how much did we win? And I said, oh, it ain't that type of case. Ain't that type of case. The judge deemed the state's current system unconstitutional. But she didn't tell them how to fix it. She didn't tell them how much money to add or how to distribute it. That would be left to the state. But the court did take away the state's excuses for why they shouldn't or couldn't do it. In its nearly 800-page ruling, the court said there was, quote, no rational basis, unquote, for the funding gaps that existed between low- and high-wealth schools, something the state's funding system had created. And it said clearly that the state has an obligation to provide the resources necessary for all students to access a, quote, comprehensive, effective, and contemporary system of public education. 
the thing that was transformative about this court's opinion when you come down to the bottom line is it said that uh, the Constitution requires you to actually figure out what is needed and provide what is needed. Meaning it's not enough just to try to fund schools fairly. You have to actually do it. All students have to get what they need. And it's the legislature's duty to make sure that happens. For the plaintiffs and their lawyers, the ruling was a massive relief. This opinion, this 788-page opinion, is replete with information about what is not there. Uh, And it shouldn't be that hard to figure out how do you put it there. But never underestimate the power of politics. While the court had ruled in the school's favor, the fight for fair funding is far from over, since it's now up to the legislature to make things right. I'm not saying I'm not happy. I just wish there was more, uh, more pressure on the state, I guess, to take action now. I'm hoping it's not another decade. We need to put our big girl panties on, put the foolishness to the side, and let's go. So we lost a generation. That's a def- definition of generation, right, from a whole, a whole set of kids who have seen uh, nothing. So this is a matter of urgency, and it's time for everyone to face up to the fact that we can't afford, shouldn't uh, tolerate going any longer than necessary. You wonder, like, how is this going to turn out? Like, this has been going on for so many years. Is, is this finally our moment? Is it? Courts have issued similar rulings in other states. And if there's one clear takeaway, it's that change doesn't happen overnight. New Jersey reached a ruling like Pennsylvania's in the 1980s. We've been looking at what happened in New Jersey with kind of their version of this court case many years ago. And that's what scares us. How long it took them? Yeah, that's what scares us. The ruling and subsequent returns to the court reshaped New Jersey's public school system steering millions of dollars to some of the state's poorest districts. But it took decades. You, you lost two generations of students in that time? Yeah, that can't happen here. It absolutely can. And I don't think it will. I, I don't think it will. When Jennifer first joined William Penn School Board, she made it her mission to help the district get more state funding. Since they won the case, she's hoping this will be her last term. What does that mean? What would that mean for you in terms of, you know, if you come to the end of this term on the school board and this isn't resolved? Mm. I'm probably staying. Either that or I go work in Harrisburg. Um, <laughs> You're like, I'm getting this done. <laughs> like, it has to get done. Like, we can't sit here and admire the problem. Right? Like, since 2014. Talk, 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 talk. Like, no, stop talking. Do something. While the trial may be over in Pennsylvania, the real fight is just beginning. First of all, we haven't solved the problem. We've had a a court declare that uh, we need to fix the problem. When we fix it, we can be comfortable. On the next episode of Schooled, we're going to visit the schools that are getting it right and ask them for advice. We came in from the bottom, and now we're at the top. And keeping it at the top, which is key. Then we'll head to the Pennsylvania State Capitol to see how legislators are or aren't responding. How many meetings do we have to say this is what we're going through and to not be able to deliver because somebody doesn't get it is very frustrating. And how schools are taking matters into their own hands while they continue to wait for help. There were some people who said, how are we going to pay for this, right? And I'm one of the folks who 
believe you don't say no to yourself. That's next time on Schooled. This is Schooled. I'm Opera Juhas. Our producers are Michael Olcott and Michaela Winberg. Our editor is Jamil LeBay, and our engineer is Al Banks. Our tile art was made by Robert Dieters. Our executive producers are Sarah Glover and Tom Grassler. Special thanks to Mike and Scott, Gabriel Coffey, Kenny Cooper, Grant Hill, Susan Phillips, and Kayla Watkins, and to everyone who spoke with us for this podcast. Schooled is a production of WHYY. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.